to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 186, recorded on February 22nd of 2024, the Photo Geekery Show, and I'm your host as always, Don Kamarechka, and as always, there is somebody in the co-pilot seat on a rotational basis, and I can't believe it's been this long since I've had this man in that seat. I'm talking about none other than the amazing Chris Marquardt. Chris, how are oh, you today, sir? What an intro. I appreciate you getting me back on the show. It's always fun with you here. Well, and you know, it's, it's it's fun to hear your opinions too, because we we are of like mind of certain things and uh, not necessarily in opposition on others, but your opinion is never just a blatant <laughs> echo of my own, which is always I, wonderful I, for conversation. And it helps that I do have opinions and lots of yes. them. <laughs> yes. And you know, we're, we've got a lot to talk about on on this episode, talking about sort of the future of the industry, uh, ethically, morally, in terms of equipment, we, uh, we'll get into it. We've got a whole bunch of stories, and Chris even brings something to the table as well. Uh, you've, uh, you, you put in a special request to add in another story, and I'm always happy when a guest does that. More guests need to do it. Before <laughs> we get into those stories, though, uh, give us the elevator pitch of what's been going on in your life since we last talked. Uh, doing my, my usual stuff, uh, working on on different podcasts, including the future of photography, happy shooting, um, and at the moment working on preparing a couple of um, tours to um, come back to Eastern Europe sometime in the in the fall. That Ooh. went really well last year. So, whereabouts um, in Eastern I'm, Europe are you planning on coming? Well, it's it's the tr it's it's a it's a photo road trip that starts in Germany in Berlin and goes to Prague to Vienna to Budapest and ends up in Romania, um, where uh, where Henry lives, a good friend of mine, and he's he's gonna guide us there. So on the way, we'll take stops in different cities and spend a day or two in in different uh, cities there, do photography, and then get on the road for a couple of hours to the next spot and. And uh, be a merry little group of photographers. I want to do. I want to do that exact kind of tour around Bulgaria because there's yeah, so it. much to do see. It. It's uh, awesome. Fun. There's mountains. There's caves. There's um, you know waterfalls galore. Uh, the the country is six mountain ranges and a coastline, and then you've got the Thracian Valley, which is a beautiful ancient wine growing region. And uh, I think photographers could have a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And and Romania being around the corner, um, I find that. It is so similar in climate and in in the landscapes, almost like Tuscany in Italy. You know, it's very, um, very almost Mediterranean in style. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and here too, I mean, the weather is getting warmer, uh, which uh, in terms of climate change is a concern. But you know, it's uh, 17, 18 degrees outside. And after we're done recording this podcast, I'm going to go do some gardening. Uh, <laughs> never in my Canadian years would I have ever been able to say that in February. It's um, it's nice, but also a bit concerning. Yes, yes. All right, well, let's talk about something that is quite concerning to me. Uh, story number one, which I don't know how we could avoid talking about this one. It is coming on uh, fast and disruptive. OpenAI's Sora turns short text prompts into photorealistic videos. And this has been uh, on the news in the last week and, and a bit and uh, had to make it the headlining story, partly because I know that AI has been constantly growing and faster than I would have expected. But I did not expect the, the rather nightmarish, you know, Will Smith eating spaghetti from a few years ago uh, as an AI video prompt to have evolved as quickly as what we are seeing here with Sora. So I want to get your opinions on this, Chris. What do you think about not just this <laughs> latest video development? I mean, the stills have been a huge thing since we've talked uh, last as well. But where is this going for you? And, uh, and just opine away. Well, you you are you are you're touching on a topic that I've been following really, really closely for the last two years. Um, you you will remember the uh, the cosmopolitan cover that was June twenty twenty two the astronaut um, completely yep. computer generated and a lot of people were amazed by it but also it's something that took like several weeks of prompt massaging and getting it right and so it was not it was not a danger but what's happening with Zora now 
it's a bit of a wake-up call, especially in, in the mainstream people who didn't really follow this that closely. And especially if you compare it to what happened a year ago, Will Smith eating spaghetti being legendary. Um, and the big problem, <clears throat> the big problem is that the human brain has a hard time anticipating exponential developments. We see this yeah. over and over again in this field. We extrapolate future development from our past experience and developments in the past have been slower. I mean, the, the, the telephone we, took, half a, yeah, took, took a decade to be accepted almost. The car took forever. Look at how forever, quickly things you know. evolved as soon as we started with electricity, right? Communication became uh, oh. easy. You know, the telephone and then we the had... internet. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the internet just exploded our possibilities. But we are seeing the timescales between like telephone to internet, which was many, many decades, um, 100 years, or I don't know the exact numbers, but it was a lifetime. Let's just say that as a round, vague number. But now this is happening, that same level of evolution is happening on a one to two year cycle. Oh, and, and we it, don't have it's getting the faster. It is. Remember when you could kind of classify a decade? You could say, remember the 70s? Remember the 80s? Well, you couldn't really do that in the 2000s, nor the 2010s. And now the 2020s, every year is its own microcosm, right? Uh, totally. And and looking at Sora, yes, it's not perfect, but it's good enough for many things. Um, I I have uh, on the on the the future of photography podcast. I have a co-host Jeremiah Chechik. He's a he's a venerable Hollywood director, and I asked him last week, "Are we there yet?" And he said, "Yes." <laughs> so so uh, maybe not for main characters in productions, but as background plates, uh, a landscape behind a driving car, or extra sitting in a cafe, that kind of stuff. Um, you can put this in the background now, and that uh, is absolutely good enough already. Um, with all the implications on labor, uh, just just looking at movie production, the whole the whole pre production thing, storyboarding, concept art is is AI now. Um, Location Which is scout. why the writers and the actors were striking <laughs> yes. uh, in America because they knew that if they don't negotiate properly right now, their jobs uh, as they know them anyhow uh, will cease to exist. Right, and and but but now it, the actual production is uh, starting to be disrupted. Uh, locations, location scouting, locations in general, the digital backdrops, the virtual sets, the VFX, um, stock video. In when we look at at photography, stock is 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 on the way out. Uh, but also also commercial stuff like training videos and so on. All that is moving towards AI, and Sora is showing us that it's closer than you think and yep. in, in, in the photography side the, the whole creative field is being disrupted which is interesting because uh many people thought that labor manual labor would be disrupted by robots and things which is also happening but um the creative side is being disrupted first which is an interesting development yeah i'm not gonna be able to you know go buy a robotic plumber anytime soon you know physical labor jobs are going to continue to exist in many fashions manufacturing is the one that is being the most affected by that but we we have the idea i was talking to another colleague about this recently that you know they had a client that said that their work is more important um, when it's all done in camera. They specifically were requesting that, yes, you can Photoshop, you can take an image and do whatever AI prompts on uh, pre-existing imagery uh, to generate something fanciful and, and manipulate the edits. But if they can get it as close to perfect in camera, it was more meaningful for the client. Mm -hmm. And I think oh. that this is a growing trend where we, we want reality. <laughs> and reality I is mean, something that we are lacking. There's already backlash. AI art is perceived as cheap now because it is. Making an AI image will cost you cents. Uh, Handmade art will, and photography especially, will receive a boost because the real deal is going to be special and, and it will be valued. Um, the question... There will always be the people, Chris, though, that say, oh, that's a wonderful photograph. You must have a great camera. And that the natural evolution of that is, well, this is so wonderful what you've created. You must have a nice prompt, right? Uh, the question will soon be, how, how do we distinguish the two? And up to now, it was enough to look at the hands, but that is going away. Things are getting better. 
uh, camera makers are now banding together in like things like the CAI, the Content uh, Authenticity Initiative, to put yeah, we chips in cameras. That. And, that, and if that becomes ubiquitous, yeah. then that's more power to journalism and uh, and the integrity of of the you know the reality that we need to be sure of. Um, now, it's not saying like photography has always been art, uh, but photojournalism should be held to a different standard. And, oh. and I believe that that is, yeah, degraded you, these days. You, you can clearly go down the line of different uh, areas of photography and, and, and clearly see, are they going to be affected or not? I mean, if you're a stock photographer, this is the time to learn the new tools because the, the business handshake is not enough. Or Santa sitting in a beach chair sipping a cocktail is not enough. Human creativity is key. We have the better idea still. This is an idea where AI doesn't have a leg up yet. Um, yet. It's great at he. It's it not yet. It's great at rehashing things like the things that it has been trained on. It's not really good at coming up with really original things just yet. So stock photography chain. Yeah. Oh, sorry. kind of getting onto the idea of stock photography there is a chain of restaurants uh in in bulgaria that have billboards that and they change their menu monthly or seasonally uh and right now it's got like a, a latin or mexican type of type of theme and i'm just looking at the images and i'm thinking nah that's not real uh, that that child with a mexican hat and and that meal photograph those they, it i don't believe it values anymore. And the, things, the problem right? is they might be real but I don't believe that they're real anymore because my trust in things like that that could very well be AI generated is degrading my trust in the reality that I'm seeing everywhere. And the th- that, that has already kind of happened with Photoshop and things, but it's happening on a different scale now because it scales. It scales to everyone. Everyone can put in a, a smart prompt and get something nice out out of mid-journey or something. Um, but then if you look at other other types of photography, wedding photographers don't really need to worry, I think. You're safe. No couple would accept artificial wedding shots. At Not least yet. I, I don't know. Them. There, are, there are some people that want to get married on the edge of a volcano. Right, those people exist in the world, and if that's not feasible, then they can still have their dream come true virtually. Well, but will anyone other than them look at that photo and say, "Wow, awesome"? I mean, no, not really, because yeah. we are <laughs> the, the the media are flooded with these images now, and of course, you, you can use AI to edit to fix a background or something, or make I don't know, make Uncle Harry smile on a group shot for once. These kind of right. things are going to happen, and I think those are legitimate. Um, portrait photography, senior portraits, and that kind of things. I don't think they're in danger because we want the real thing here. I think again that authenticity, um, that that untouched version of reality. Right. The, uh, one of the danger zones is like commercial photography for business and commercials. Um, if you open up an IKEA catalog, I don't think they print them anymore. But uh, for the last. I think 10 years, none of those interior photos of, of, of uh, furnished rooms have been real. They have been fake for the yeah. longest time. So uh, that kind and of stuff is going to be that, easier now. Right? And, and, the, like, and, and, and we don't even care because it looks real. It feels real. And even the knowledge of the, them coming from a very skilled people working with uh, the right software – didn't really change our feeling about it, I think. So uh, if AI is good enough to do that, that will just be uh, replacing the people uh, operating the computers. Real estate photography. Hey, oh, that's a big uh, one. The, yeah, but the, the, like, like the brown patch on the grass in front of the house, um, that was fixed in the past by a, by a stencil clone stamp in Photoshop and it's now going to be fixed by an AI. But... The whole thing. Um, well, I mean, the, the thing about uh, uh, real estate photography, this is actually an important consideration because um, if you were given uh, a set of cell phone snaps of each room just to get the general sense of style uh, for the room and then a floor plan, 
it is conceivable that with uh, the accurate measurements, lighting, position of where the windows and where the light would come into a particular room, that you could artificially generate very high quality images and a three-dimensional tour of the property where you can just walk through the house without ever having to actually visit it. I would argue that is possible already now. Um, maybe not right out of the box, but if you know the tools, then th that should be doable. Um, but that's not real estate photography. That is creating floor plans and things. And for that, AI, hey, awesome. More power to that. But um, if you want the authentic, like, stain on the carpet kind of thing, then <laughs> I think we're still looking at actual photography to a certain extent. Maybe just as, maybe just to create the source material for the AI to gen then generate whatever it needs to generate. Um, well, now I got a question for you. It actually comes in, in three parts. I need a prediction from you. What do you think things are going to be in one year, five years, and 10 years in terms of the evolution of AI and its relationship with imagery and reality? That is a seriously good question. I, I, I don't think I can be as granular as, as one, five, 10 years, but I think what, and, and that's a prediction I made 10 years ago already, and I think we're getting closer to that. I'm still uh, holding up my idea of, um, I call it photographic archaeology. We have a lot of photos. We have, if, if, you, if you look at, at like landmarks and things where tourists go, you have millions of photos of different things. Um, but we also tend to have more and more photos of just regular everyday places. And at one point, we'll have, uh, maybe we're close to that, to that data set um, that you can then train an AI on and just perform archaeology, peel out every photo you like from every angle under every light condition. Right. Um, it's in there somehow in the training data. And uh, um, that's where photography, uh, for where, where some kind of photography will be going for sure. But uh, the authentic thing, that's one of the reasons I'm still doing, I'm still taking people on a road trip to take photography in the place. You will not replace that. Even with the best VR, you're not going to do that. So actual real photography like pictures, is an experience. Right? I, exactly. I have this experience on, on workshops where we last year in May, we did our annual Abbey workshop um, one week with 30 people. And we had a uh, uh, different topics and one of them was AI and that a that topic didn't get any serious interest from people because they were there to take photos to generate art and there was no interest from that community in the AI topic and I don't think it'll that'll change well and and that I mean photographers love our cameras in our hands we love the gear the tools of the trade um, and that uh, that brings us to our next story which is very timely uh, <laughs> CP plus 2024 is happening uh, pretty much right now. We're recording this on Thursday. This coming weekend is when uh, the conference is. And there's been a lot of announcements over the past few days. Uh, a new X100 from Fuji. They're up to version six now. Uh, lenses from Sigma and Liowa and a new one this morning from Panasonic. And I'm sure there's a lot of other equipment that is either coming or it's here right now. Um, do any of these new announcements uh, uh, tickle your fancy at all? Are, are you... Are you the kind of photographer that would look out and say, okay, well, uh, a new uh, range of equipment, let's break out the spec lists and see exactly, uh, you know, what the uh, pupil aperture opening on this new particular lens is versus the previous stuff that I have, or if it's good enough, it's good enough. Yeah, not anymore. Um, if if I ever was that way, I've I've overcome the the gear acquisition syndrome for the most part because I because because I have a history of spe always spending way too much on gear anyway. So um, I'm at the point where I say, and and I, I I get asked by people, what should I buy, what lens, what camera, and so on. And my answer now is mostly if it helps you tell the story then buy it if it makes you feel better then buy it if it makes you happy then buy it um i had to go through buying and trying a lot of things to get to the point where i don't need to anymore because i understand now better that it's a that photography is about different things at least it's for me so um it, if you want to buy it buy it if you can afford it 
afford it. If you fine. can afford it, that's that's the key. Don't don't put oh. this stuff on credit cards, folks. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting because some of these products do iterate rather quickly compared to like my my grandfather had bought a Canon AE one, and that was his camera for twenty years. Uh, until he decided to get, you know, some digital uh, camera uh, well afterwards and and gave that camera to me. It's, it's uh, sitting on a shelf here. But I've been shooting with the Lumix S1R since uh, 2019, I think. And so that's going on half a decade for a camera body. And that might be time to, to be replaced at some point. But I've got lenses that are still my workhorse lenses that have been discontinued for a long time from the manufacturer. And they are still rock solid. And if they die and there's no adequate re- uh, replacement to it at that time, like the Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens, which I still use a lot, then I'm going to go on eBay and I'm going to find a used one. I don't necessarily need uh, to have the latest, but there are some technical, you know, uh, the the new Sigma uh, fisheye lens, for example, uh, they make it in my lens mount, which is great. It's got an <laughs> F 1.4 aperture versus the 1.2, uh, the, the, uh, the 2.8 aperture that I have on my old Canon 15 millimeter fisheye. But my God, I looked at the price of this thing and you know, you're looking at $2,000, for a a trick lens, right? A lens that really would not come out of the camera bag more than once a month. And I just can't justify the upgrade. It's just not unless, worth it for me. Unless you make it your thing and that's your photography. I mean, I, I, I couldn't live without my tilt shift lenses anymore. They are considered trick lenses for some people, but I use them for my everyday photography because I get to c- correct perspectives and things like that. What you see is what you get kind of photography. It's, it's funny you but, mentioned tilt shift because I, I recently just uh, acquired my first tilt shift lens, which is the Aster Hori 85 millimeter macro tilt shift mm-hmm. lens. So um, that will be a fun thing to experiment and explore. Uh, if tilt shift is applicable to any topic, uh, macro is definitely one that should oh, be explored. Absolutely. Depth of field control is is, is, is crucial there sometimes. Now, what, what I but want that lens is... only cost me a couple of hundred dollars, right? Not uh, right. a couple of thousand. <laughs> Right. Now, what 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 would what would tickle my fancy is maybe some cameras that will do some live AI augmentation of your photography as you shoot it, like a live background replacement, uh, clone out that garbage can that I don't like in my photo, and it it happens right there. That kind of stuff might be interesting for some for some applications but then you could easily kind of ask that what if question that you know what might be possible in photoshop or afterwards but to see that right away will potentially change your composition based on you know what can be modified then and there and that's why i shoot with steel shift lenses as my walk around lenses because i get these corrections that I could easily do in Lightroom by just a click of a button, I can correct perspective, but getting it right straight out of camera changes the way I approach different subjects. Well, I I feel like I don't know if I will ever be completely free of gear acquisition syndrome, but I think I'm getting pretty close to uh, to, to being in remission. Uh, it's an age you know, it, thing. there's always going to be that one <laughs> that one thing that's going to come up. It's like, oh wow, yeah, I didn't realize that I needed that feature, or um, you know, just a, a camera that brings back something that was just pure nostalgia for me. I, if somebody were to wave around a very high quality digital stereoscopic 3D camera in front of me, I would say, shut up and take my money. There are uh, certain yes. things. That that just they're always going to be there, but I I don't think I'm going to be buying any of these lenses. And if you have the previous version of the Fujifilm X100, you don't need the upgrade. I, I don't think that there's enough going into these things to um, to the, I guess suggest that it's going to make you a better photographer or have a better in, experience overall. It, interestingly enough, especially about the Fuji uh, uh, X100 six. That has apparently gotten a lot of people to to upgrade. For some reason, it has received more attention than other know. things. I mean, I've, if you're I've, coming I've, from version 2 or 3 of that camera, sure. Uh, just like if you're going from an iPhone 11, well, go ahead and get the 14 or 15. I can just give you my, my anecdotal information. I've seen in, in my circles on social media, I've seen three people now who already pulled the trigger. Just... Wow out of nowhere it's like oh i just i just ordered it 
and two more people saying, I'm really looking into this camera. And I'm, I think one reason is that the version 5, the one before, was very hard to get. They had really had problems getting enough of them on the market and maybe people are uh, having a bit, a bit of FOMO and they think I better get it quick before the supplies dry up. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, it was just it was just obvious to me that that camera is getting more attention than others, and maybe it's just smart marketing on Fuji's side, or maybe I mean the, the specs. I don't know. It it looks great. It's forty oh, megapixels, nice. uh, X trans sensor, thirty five millimeter f two lens. I mean that that's a great walk around travel street photography, uh, casual uh, portrait kind of focal length. Uh, I've used thirty five millimeter in body stabilization. That is cool. So yeah, and it's actually quite not good like in body. Uh, yeah, six stops of correction um, and uh, 6.2K video capture. If you needed to have, uh, you know, uh, I shoot 5.9K. That's not necessarily a, a, an upgrade for any of the purposes. Oh no, that, you that have to upgrade. Have. It's so bad. You have the worst, ex- <laughs> worst equipment. No, well, I mean, if if a documentary film uh, was going to come to me and say, "Hey, Don, we need you to shoot 8K," then I'd say, "Okay, uh, you can either afford the camera rental cost into the budget, uh, or we can afford, uh, you know, some level of compensation for equipment upgrades. You know, one or the other, if that's needed and you need it from me, then there's the ticket. But Absolutely. otherwise, I'm fine with what I got. Okay." <laughs> Um, if you could have actually, you know, just thinking about, um, if you could buy one new piece of equipment, Chris, before we move on to the next topic, what would it be photographic related? Nothing at this point, honestly. You have it all. You have it all. Listen to this man, folks. He, he should have all of our envy. (laughs) And and then okay. and then maybe in a month from now something will come along and I'll go ooh maybe but let, let's talk about how I guess we got here the two of <laughs> us we are uh, photographers that depend on our photography and our skills related to the photographic field uh, for our livelihood and uh, I get asked this a lot by especially I got an email from a student I think he was a high school student uh, and he was. Uh, given the task of interviewing a photographer, and he gave me five questions. And one of them was, uh, like, what's your favorite camera? I'm like, no, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, Come up with a different question. And he came up with, uh, what was it? Um, uh, How do you make money? Okay. Uh, That is such a big, open-ended question. And I found an article on F-Stoppers that uh, gave a uh, link to a, a video uh, Roman uh, Fox recorded uh, a monologue, a rather boring one, Roman, sorry to say it, but uh, be a little bit more energetic when you're talking about things like this. <laughs> but practical advice for monetizing your photography. And there was a lot of good advice in there. I think he missed a couple of points. Uh, what were some of your takeaways and your recommendations for anybody listening wanting to make a few dollars or make it a career? I didn't get too far in the video for the exact reason <laughs> you just said. Um, but I mean, I personally, I, I rarely sell photography directly. It's just not my thing. I don't sell photos. I don't sell stock. Um, that isn't what I do. I also don't do weddings or similar. I I do the odd bit of editorial work or, or commercial work here and there. Um, but I, I make money on the periphery like teaching is important workshops are important i love to help others become better photographers and we have workshops uh in here here in germany i do the tours um the road trips um i also do peripheral work on in other fields that i've always done and i'm still doing is graphic design some video work for clients um uh, even some consulting on the production side, uh, something that has nothing to do with photo. Well, it does have to do with photography in that I started my podcasting career thanks to photography because that's my topic that I talk about most of the time. So um, that plus plus a background in audio production that I had professionally uh, allows me to do po- 
production consulting, help people, help companies start their own podcasts, help them. You with wear many hats, that kind of stuff. I wear many hats, but they they all come from a from a couple of similar areas. Um, I've I've just signed a contract for a new book project, so I'm I, I do that as well. Some writing um, that should be out by the end of the year, at least in Germany. I hope it gets uh, picked up by an American. A publisher and gets translated um, but that's only going to happen after the book is finished so we'll see for that um, i'm hoping for the same too for my second edition of macro photography which is going through a very big uk publisher and oh, if it goes awesome. well fingers crossed who knows there might be a german version of it oh uh, i would i would totally pimp the hell out of that this is um <laughs> the, you know the, the book business if you if you if you write a book and depending on the publisher that you get a deal with um it's it's not the make one book sell one book and be rich for the uh, to the end of your life that's not happening so um the, the translations are interesting getting them on other markets are interesting so um that's that's what every author should hope for to get picked up by multiple and, publishers. You know, the always world. know that there should be some some level of wiggle room for negotiation in contracts. Oh yes. Um, you know, talking about uh, business practices and things, I I get people that come to me with a budget or an idea uh, for something. Maybe they want to license my work. Maybe I'm going to get something commissioned specifically for them. Uh, and in almost every case, whatever number they come to you first is not the number that I end up agreeing to. Uh, there's always going to, and you don't have to, don't ask for double, but you know, if you just say, okay, well, I've got a bunch of great ideas to help you with this. Um, my, my rate is a little bit more than what you're asking for, and then come up with a number that might be 10 or 15% higher. And then, you know, if you yeah. can guarantee the quality and you're confident that you can deliver what the client wants, ask for more money. You know, that know your worth. Know that you are worth more than what other people think you are. I mean, that's, that's a general uh, rule of thumb for contracts um, where you get into a relationship with a publisher or something um someone really bluntly said it a few years ago and it, it, it hasn't left my memory said that first contract they give you is called a dummy contract because you have to be a dummy to sign it right away so negotiation is part of uh, a contractual the contract contract negotiation negotiations are essential they are part of it so being a photographer be is being a small business right like you're, you're an entrepreneur and uh, right. you have to learn how to stick everything against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, for me early on, snowflakes were a big thing. And I, I didn't know what I had. I knew I had something. And I ended up uh, writing an article on spec for a magazine and shopped it around. It ended up being published by Outdoor Photography Canada. Uh, it was my first cover shot. And they later hired me for a, a, a column every issue. It was a quarterly magazine. So every quarter I would get to you know, write about something and uh, come up with a bunch, bunch of cool ideas and be passionate about it and get paid for that. And the occasional cover shot from it was, was wonderful. That only came because I discovered that I had something that nobody else had. So if you're a photographer, it's going to be really, really hard for you to make a living as a landscape photographer selling those images to people or licensing them for because uh, chances are the places that you're going to are places like you mentioned you know big landmarks millions of people have already photographed that same thing there's no unique element to what you are bringing to the table and yes you can shoot it in infrared and you could shoot it with that fancy fisheye lens and you could get your own style but it's still going to be something that if people are just looking for a photograph of that place they're not going to discover you this brings me back to, um, I guess, a, uh, a eureka moment I had when I decided I was going to rent a, uh, a wall in a gallery, right? I'm, I'm paying for the space and any sales I keep 100% of, um, but I, I'm paying a monthly fee for this. I was there for over a year, I think 15 months. I sold exactly one piece for about $400. Now, my monthly fee, I think, was something like $200 a month. So obviously, I lost money on this particular endeavor. But it was curious because right down the road, once a year, 
we would have this big festival, Kempenfest on Kempenfeld Bay in Barrie, Ontario. And there would be like 100,000 people that would walk by. And I would have a booth with all of my work there. And I would make uh, like nets. One year was six or $7,000 because uh, I was doing all the production work myself. And that's, that's a really, really good weekend for selling art. I couldn't imagine that having gone any better for me. But I realized very quickly that there's a disconnect between these two environments. The one in the gallery where I am not present and people are buying the art with the artist unseen and the other one where people are talking with the artist and I'm passionately describing exactly how an image was taken, showing them behind the scenes images of how they were made and then pulling, you know, from a, I did a lot of canvas prints from the back of the canvas, I'd pull a five by seven paper print of the behind the scenes image and I'd say, this is yours if you want to buy this and you can keep this as a conversation piece <laughs> and then boom, sales, 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 because people were not buying the art. People were buying the artist. And that is forever true because all of my collected works through my entire life will never be worth as much as a scribble on a napkin from Van Gogh because they're buying the artist. Do you, uh, speaking of speaking of interesting ideas, how to get your work out there, uh, do, have you heard of a, a band from the 1980s called The Residents? I They, have not. They, there's an art rock band, very eclectic stuff. They never got any radio play. And in order to get radio play, they created an album called The Commercial Album. The Commercial Album had 40 tracks on them, and each of the tracks was under a minute long. And so they, they took out advertising, uh, commercial space, uh, right in front of the full hour, uh, in front of their, the, like, or, or even in the middle of some music shows on the radio. Uh, and had their music play there. So they got airplay in the middle of some of these f shows that had top 40 stuff on them. Um, they had That's to pay for them, strategy. but that but that brought them on the map. That made them visible to a lot of uh, new people. So if you can't yeah, afford I that. I like that strategy. I, I don't know I like if I can that work too. that into my particular strategy here, but that is brilliant, uh, especially for the time uh, at which that you said it was the 1980s. Uh, that would have been a very effective marketing strategy. Uh, in terms of my marketing, I mean, I mentioned stuff on this podcast because, again, it's sort of like a one-way conversation to anybody listening. Uh, they feel like they know me. They, or at least they've said that. So thanks for at least crawling inside my head a little bit. But at the same time, I realize that some of the, the successes that I've had cannot be excused by anything other than survivorship bias. Um, I got lucky. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are other people that work just as hard as I do, and they can't make a living at this. And this must be mentioned as a part of the reality. Because when I was, um, when I was working on my Snowflake series, a, I don't want to mention his name, but a, a friend of mine uh, who was working at Google added my name to the list of people you should follow on Google+. And I ended up with over a million followers. And wow. that and then Google Plus died. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, but before it did, before it did, I was able to create a crowdfunding project uh, for my first book, Sky Crystals, which was hugely successful. Right. One of the people that pre-ordered that book had an email address that said at cbc.ca, uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So I followed up with this guy, and he was a producer for a TV show called The Nature of Things with David Suzuki. At which point, when he got the book, I was on-screen talent for an episode of that show, which was watched by people at the BBC, and they <laughs> hired me to work on the documentary series Forces of Nature. Now, when you get into this space, uh, when one documentary project ends, the people are usually freelance. So they go off to another project, and they go off to another project and said, well, we need this really strange macro videography. And uh, one of the producers says, hey, I know just the guy. Yeah. And they bring me into another project. And there is so much luck involved in that. I couldn't have planned for that. I couldn't have strategized a way to open that door. It just happened for me. And you'll find the, the harder you work, the luckier you are. I'll give it that. Um, but sometimes those lucky breaks just, just make it for you. Yeah, you, you just have to make sure people know that you're there. Because if they don't, then everything else falls to the wayside. 
Exactly. And I'm, I'm still surprised uh, how often people will read the full page plus of text that I post associated with every image that I share on social media. Um, mm. Some people even complained about some of the, the recent stuff I was posting to Instagram because I had to shave some paragraphs off because Instagram has a character limit of 2,200 characters, and I often write more than that. Um, people will, not everybody's going to read it, but those that do are going to be more associated with your personality as your brand. And if you can make your personality more and more seen in your work, then that again goes back to the idea that people will buy the artist more than the art. Right. It's, it's often that uh, it's not you who finds a niche, but it's the niche who finds you. Yes, absolutely. Um, one thing that I think you, you hinted on at the very beginning, stock photography is dead. Do not put your images on micro stock websites. And in fact, if you have them there, take them down. And if somebody wants to license your work, use a reference for rights managed prices. Now, there's a couple of them out there. There's Getty Images that I believe still has their calculator active. Uh, I've been more a favor recently of Masterfile. And so with Masterfile, I can just pull up an image. Uh, they've got you know some snowflake images or whatever else. I mean, it doesn't really have to be exactly the same because the rights managed prices are generally the same, even though the image is different. Uh, and you can plug in the very specific uses. This is being used in editorial, in print and online, worldwide for one month. What's the price going to be? Oh, that's a heck of a lot higher than I would have thought to charge. And so you can then use these calculators when somebody is asking you for... A, uh, a quote for an image license that they want to use your work, you can say this is an industry standard calculator. And I am showing I'm being very transparent with how I am arriving at this number, you might choose to give them a discount from that, or maybe, uh, you know, bundle in something else at the same rate as a value add, there's lots of strategies for it. But sometimes you just have to walk away. I had somebody that was, um, they were making some of those uh, made for TV hallmark uh, romantic comedy movies. And they wanted to license a number of my images. And when I told them the price, they basically said, there's, there's no way. Our entire budget for <laughs> set dressing is $7,000. Wow. And that includes furniture. And it's like, okay, well, um, I don't think you're going to be able to afford me at that point. And I'm going to walk away because I, your budget is too small. And if I can't fix that, Good luck. <laughs> oh, well. Okay. Oh, well. Oh, well. But hey, that's uh, it, it's a business, you know, and uh, to be completely transparent, a large part of my business also comes from the fact that people do not license my images and then use them in a commercial context. And then I have to get engaged with a lawyer. And there's a number of ways I do this. I prefer to work one-on-one -on -one with an attorney. And I do that in a number of countries. Uh, I use a service called PickRights, and they, uh, they'll handle stuff, especially in non-English speaking countries that I wouldn't really have a hope of finding uh, a, a proper attorney for. And if they can't handle it themselves, then they do partner with attorneys. And uh, I've had that yield some pretty good results over the years. But you'd be surprised how many people actually steal stuff. Right now, I've got an image of uh, grains of salt that I photographed over a decade ago uh, that I found last week on a large industrial manufacturer of salt in <laughs> Turkey. And so now I'm trying to track down a Turkish copyright attorney, and I'm not sure if I will have much success doing that, but that is, uh, pick rights doesn't operate in Turkey, unfortunately. So um, yeah, that is is a big part of the business people just see it online and think it's free to use and ignorance is not a defense for infringing on somebody's right yeah there's a whole lot of um a whole lot of people out there who either don't care or who don't know and then you have to educate them yes yes and oh and some of them are so arrogant uh, when it comes to trying to show them how wrong they are and i i've had uh some people 
uh, tried to come up with all sorts of excuses to me in the past, you know, like uh, their young child has cancer or their spouse has just lost their job. And I, I get really squishy when that sort of argument is presented to me. But the lawyers will say, okay, show us the financial statements, you know, show us the medical bills, show us all of this. Oh, oh, you don't even have a child. Okay, well, then thanks for trying <laughs> and uh, making bad, bad faith arguments. And, and now you're going to have to pay more. <laughs> the life of a photographer takes many turns <laughs> yes it does okay well let's uh before we get into the next story uh i want to ask you chris where people can find you online your various podcasts your social media presence your website and the like um it's all bundled into like all, all linked from chrismockwart.com that's my main page um and yeah, you'll you'll find everything there. The direct way to my workshops and tours, um, I'm just updating the contents of that site is discoverthetopfloor.com. That's the two things that are probably going to yield the best results. All right. And uh, you gave us a, a pick, a pick of the week <laughs> uh, from Chris Marquardt here. And uh, this is this is in the form of a YouTube video, 25 minutes long. Get your patience ready. But I think it's worth your attention. Uh, yeah. No CGI is really just invisible CGI. This is a video in a series of four. It's the third one. And yes. it is shocking how far we have come to depend like a crutch, like a drug on uh, computer-generated uh, imagery in everything that we see, not just the cinema space, but television shows as well, Chris. What say you about this pick? Well, it's, it's again, it's, it's, a, it's one in a series of, I think, four videos. And um, the title is No CGI is Really Just Invisible CGI. And the, the channel makes, uh, makes it very clear that what you see on screen is typically augmented in some way um also this is nothing new um they we look back at matte paintings back in the, the in the dawn of uh, of film and and movies it, it has always been there trickery has always been there and very often just for the simple fact that we are um that that they are they are uh, strapped on cash right they need to be in their budget they need to stay within budget so they will Wait, find you can't ways afford a to real lightsaber well, it, it, <laughs> what is what is what is financially easier to have a mansion up on the hill in the background or to have a painting of a mansion in, on the hill in the background? Right? There's 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 that that is often what it comes down to. What is interesting now is that studios have started to um, to claim we're not doing CGI; it's everything is built in real. We do practical effects, and turns out that uh, that Warner Brothers has said that, for example latest example about the barbie movie um their claim has been debunked thoroughly debunked even by people on the production who in podcasts and on interviews just 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 said yeah there's about 1500 vfx shots in there that's like three quarters of the entire movie um and that is not so too surprising because again it's it's always been there it will always been there uh, be there um, but what is interesting, what was a bit of a shocker to me, even though that's also not a new practice I found out, is that the studios are now, uh, or ha have for at least a year, um, desaturated or removed blue and green screens from their bonus footage, from their behind-the-scenes footage. So I like you, seeing that, you know, especially the people, uh, the stand-ins with the like ping pong balls all over them in order they to try to uh, keep a narrative going. And the narrative is we are not using CGI. So if you look at the 45 minutes of, of, of bonus footage of the Barbie movie, you'll see several scenes that have clearly have very badly keyed out green screens replaced by backdrops, by uh, beach, by uh, sky and so on. Um, that I think that's a bit of a letdown because, or or there's the uh, the latest uh, Mission Impossible movie where uh, they have even in the behind the scenes footage they have safety cables edited out to make it look a bit more dangerous and so that behind the scenes footage isn't real anymore. That's no. That's messing uh, with the, the story. value of it. Was that it was untainted, right? It. Gave you the look behind the scenes. Yeah. 
Not, so, not so name that, anymore. that's a bit of a letdown. Other than that, this this video series will give you just a really good look at how they do it. And I like some to things that I, I take for granted. Like I, I remember it was uh, uh, talking with Jordan Drake on this podcast in a previous episode, and we were discussing the uh, cinematics of TV at the time. And there was a new season of Star Trek Discovery. We're talking about um, uh, anamorphic bokeh in the background. Um, and he caught me off guard when he said, well, yeah, but you realize the entire background of the scene is, is uh, CGI. So that beautiful anamorphic bokeh that you're seeing is also oh, CGI. Sure. <laughs> it's not that they had an anamorphic lens on the camera to generate that effect. Um, and, and that kind of ruined it for me a little bit. Oh, but I, hey, I just, it, it goes to your point. I, I just heard uh, like like if you if it, Hollywood Hollywood creating big movies and things you have a scene someone's driving a car they shoot a close up in the background that might not even be CGI that might be a television a, a large TV set just placed there with a landscape uh, zooming by because it is a cheap way to do it in a very convincing fashion. Do you know when the first green screen was ever used, Chris? No, but probably somewhere in the 70s. I guess. Uh, well, I, I know that there was some green screening done with the original Star Wars series. Uh, I know that much. But um, it's not like they built a Sarlax pit. So um, there's like it goes back a very, very long time uh, before today. Oh, silent movies. They had matte paintings um, to replace parts of the set or to extend parts of the set. Even, even in, in, in the Second World War, the the allies were um, showing more like airplanes in a hangar that they were by using matte paintings just to make uh, better propaganda. So yes, yes, propaganda been has around. been a big play on that. Well before computers, and uh, again, this kind of goes back to our first story that the idea of I mean, with cinema, I get it that it's cheaper to do some things in a certain way. And so you do it in, in that particular way. Um, I, especially I was if it's convincing, the, especially if it doesn't distract you from the story. The, uh, the movie Coraline, one of my daughter's favorites, uh, mm. stop motion animation. They made a 3d version of that, but the 3d version of it that they made was actually by taking the camera and shifting it left and right between every single frame so that they had the, the actual proper depth perception in stereoscopic 3d. And that I thought was really cool. Uh, today we have the tech that could easily approximate that and probably not as good, but for the number of people that would actually watch a 3d version of a movie and that's changing with Apple vision pro. And I get that, you know, old is new again, but the idea is that if you could do it in a traditional way, I'd much rather see you do that. Make the gigantic animatronic dinosaurs from Jurassic park, please. <laughs> Okay, I, I have. Uh, okay, uh, do we have five more minutes? Because I want to. I want to dive into that because I recently listened to uh, a, a podcast with a producer, especially about three Difying existing footage and uh, why don't you rather? Why wouldn't you rather shoot it in three D? Uh, and it turns out the other method, the taking something 2D and then frame by frame assigning depth to things and re-rendering them, um, is sometimes the better version because when you shoot 3d from the start you are shooting at a specified distance between those two uh, images e.g your interpupillary inter distance might not match with that and that might cause problems when you watch it later so by having that thing virtualized you end up being able to give everyone their specific 3d edit of the movie that will be the perfect fit for them and cause less issues with uh, virgins accommodation nausea these kind of things well so, if it's stop motion you could just break out that old nimslow 3d quadra lens <laughs> camera and just get everybody can choose their pick uh of the interpupillary distance and then go from there there's lots of ways to solve this problem chris i know i know <laughs> I just I found it funny because that's just a couple of days ago that I listened to that. It was interesting to hear. Well, and you also have the the computational data that could be provided from lidar or other uh, you know information sources yeah. that can adjust the three uh, the three D projection you, as well. You also you also might get weird lens artifacts like uh, some flare that is only in one lens and not in the other because where the light sources are placed. So uh, it's not. It, 
that one way is not necessarily pretty, the pretty better interestingly. one. Interestingly, I photographed some frost that had uh, glare from the light on one lens on one particular facet and another one right. in a different part of the frame and so on, but not on the other. And so yes. when I viewed it in 3D, it literally sparkled because that detail <laughs> differential was bouncing back and forth between my perception from my left and right eyes. And it was a really cool effect. So uh, it all depends on what you're after in the end, I suppose. I think it does, yeah. Okay, final story. I was really happy when I learned, and this was, the Leica T is not a new camera, um, but when I realized that there are manufacturers out there that are actually putting onboard memory into their cameras. Yes, you can plug in your memory card just as you always would, but there's a backup. There is, uh, there's memory that is built right into it. Yes, it's not going to be a whole lot, 16 gigabytes in this particular case. Uh, but I think that's a feature that a lot of uh, manufacturers should embrace. But what was really cool about the implementation of this um, is, is the fact that Leica didn't just put 16 gigabytes of memory on on the board they put it on a micro sd card and hid the slot so you can just remove the plastic cover that's in front of the regular memory card slot and you can see a baby memory card slot right next to it that has the backup internal memory and you can upgrade it in this case uh, it was upgraded on this article from like a rumors with a 128 gigabyte micro sd card and it appeared to operate just fine so, Chris, what do you what do you think about these types of features? And uh, is there is there a feature on a camera that you're missing today, like uh, a mechanical shutter cocking mechanism or anything from a, a vintage past that uh, that you'd like to see new again? Um, the, the, well. No, not really. I think I'm quite happy with what we have today. Uh, but but that story that that triggered something in me because I initially thought it was more like they're doing some fakery there. Like it reminded me of a of a, of a story I read about thumb drives that were when you opened them they had micro SD cards uh, soldered in there, which was not that good of an idea because they used some cheap memory um, to. Right, and and the one the micro SD card that it uh, used was just some uh, off well Toshiba, but Toshiba is yeah. not really known for and their flash memory in in a brand sense. Um, so go ahead and put your SanDisk Pro in there and make yeah, sure that I, that doesn't get corrupted. I wondered why they didn't advertise that you could swap that out, um, but I guess it, well, it would have been a plus to know that upfront. I guess it might have been for like liability reasons or something yeah you'd have to take screws out of the camera and you don't really want to yeah. advertise that and have your customers start disassembling things but then i mean I'm, I'm 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 totally over this all over this because it's awesome that you can just simply upgrade that so upgradability um but might be a, a thing that i would love to see more in cameras as in yeah let me take that 24 megapixel sensor out and just plug in a new one um well, like I some mean, of these has new mo mobile like that phones their, that allow uh, you to do that grx series of cameras and you have, yeah but that was a one-off it was nothing that caught on right no no but even like the idea okay um you buy a, a new computer Chances are, if you're getting something from Apple or any of the, the big name <laughs> manufacturers, you're not going to be able to upgrade any components in it. But if you buy something from, um, I think Razer still allows you to upgrade the memory on it after the fact. There's a slot on the bottom of some models that will allow you to uh, increase the amount of RAM that the oh, uh, a, laptop a, has available. There's a laptop manufacturer out there, I don't remember the name, who just released a new thing where you can upgrade every part of it. You can swap out the, the USB ports for newer versions and down to like really, really granular things as the speakers and so on. Um, yeah. It would be camera? neat if, if when ordering a camera, just like when you're ordering a new Mac or whatever, and you've got or the spec car. list, you can choose. <laughs> yeah, you can choose the options that you want to add. You want to have the extra memory, great. You want to have the slightly faster processor. That's an option. It'll cost you. This is the only time that you can do it. I kind of wish that the camera space was like that to a very small degree. And the only degree that I would uh, say is for the internal memory in the camera. 
I wish I would have the option to have more RAM. Just like uh, OM System has just released the, the new version of the OM1, the Mark II, they've doubled the amount of RAM, and that has vastly improved the burst rate. Uh, or the, I mean, the, the frames per second is the same, but the length of the burst has more than doubled by doubling the internal memory. I just wish that was an option. I just wonder what would happen. Like, would it be with like with cars, where the base model would already be expensive enough, and then every single option would just like make you make you wanna wanna burn your credit card? I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I I bought like the the last car that we bought uh, was the Volkswagen Polo. Nice small car uh, for the one-way streets that are actually two-way streets of the city of Varna, <laughs> which is right near near where we are. So it's it, some people try to drive like big Mercedes and BMWs there. It doesn't go well for them. Um, so a small car was a good thing. But I'm going through the list. Oh yeah, you know heated seats. That sounds like a great idea. Oh well, I would certainly like a, a sunroof. And and you could say, oh wow, that hmm, that doubled the price of the car once I clicked all of these boxes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Anyhow, I, I would still like the option. Give me, give me the power. Um, right. Okay, so that is the Leica T. Thank you, Leica, for doing something unexpectedly innovative and that we are only discovering now. Now let's get into our picks of the week. My pick is just out of reach. It's on the table over there because it's attached to some flashes for some artwork reproduction photography. And you can use these for a lot of things. Uh, polarized film. Sheets of uh, of polarized film. The stuff that I have is 20 centimeters by 30 centimeters, um, you know, the size of a large tablet screen or something to that effect. And uh, you might not realize immediately how useful playing with polarized light is, but these are great educational examples. Uh, they They work for artwork reproduction, for product photography. Anything that you are in a controlled environment and you want to remove reflections off of anything that's not metallic, because again, polarizers will do that. But if you put polarizers on your lights and you put a polarizer on your camera, you can completely cut out 100% of the unwanted light that is coming from the light source by using this technique. And it's not expensive. The ones that I found were 19 euro for a pack of two. Uh, and I've cut them in half so that I could put them on four separate lights. And it works beautifully. You can get them cheaper on eBay or AliExpress. Your mileage may vary when you go to, uh, uh, I guess, unknown brands. But uh, yeah, sheets of polarizing film. Just keep them in your drawer, in your... A studio or your space where you like to tinker with photography, you will find a use for them one day for sure. I, I have one thing to add. Uh, I read a few years ago, someone brought that up, and I was always willing, to, always wanting to try that. And that is portrait photography with people wearing glasses, where you always have to juggle where you put the lights so you don't oh, get, I get weird reflections. I don't really shoot people, but that's a great idea. And putting that's putting a foil, a polarizer foil, in front of the in front of the lights and a polarizer on the camera, you should, in theory, be able to take a portrait with someone uh, with someone with glasses, and you won't see any reflections in there. It might it might be too dead though. It might be cutting too much out. Well, then you can just rotate the polarizer on the camera That's to true. a degree at which you want to dial a little bit of it back in. Yeah. So yeah, that would be that would it, be it's the a, it's idea. It's a fun little tool that if you know how to use it, it's going to be very valuable for those moments where it's going to come in handy. And your pick of the week, <laughs> Mr. Chris Marquardt. This is hyper nerdy. Okay, so... I love so, it. Uh, yeah, I, I I came across this recently. So you you know you, you know those mirror lenses um, that ex that make the, the the path longer by folding the light. You have a a tube, an outer tube, and you have a uh, an entry pupil and then a mirror that bounces the light back, and then a smaller mirror that bounces back into the camera, and then you can have like a three hundred millimeter lens and that is delicious very light. donut bokeh. Yes, the bokeh is a, is an issue, but these these <laughs> uh, these uh, things are especially the same kind of uh, thing as a Schmidt Cassegrain telescope. That's how they build some of the telescopes, and typically these telescopes are again made from two mirrors, some glass, and a couple of tubes. And um, there's a, this Dutch lens maker, Richterhorst, who hand grinds these out of a solid block of glass. He makes monolithic 
telescopes. Um, and you can do this by then coding the outer mirror thing with a mirror surface and so on. Um, and the result is tiny telescopes that are used on small satellites. They go into space and um, they have, of course, uh, uh, advantages. So cool. They are robust. They're monolithic. So they have nothing that can get out of alignment. Um, yeah, that they can't are, break. They can't really break. They have decent performance at their size. And in that video, you will learn... Well, it's a it's an interview, um, and then you get to see how it does it, and it it shows you how to hand grind the lens, and it's an interesting, also an interesting dive into spherical lenses and aspherical lenses, and how you can hand grind those because that is not easy at all. Um, and he takes like a couple of months to make one of these, and um, and it's a it's a very satellite-born telescope. That's very uh, that's about as nerdy very, as it gets. It, it's about as nerdy, yes. And uh, I I just loved seeing that as a new thing. And um, and then the guy who shot the video on his own channel, he tries to reproduce that, and he builds one in one of his videos and puts it on a camera and. Uh, the optical performance, because he is not as experienced, is not quite as good as a lens, but still, it's it's an amazing kind of uh, thing to watch. I'd like to build my own lens at one point, and I know it's going to be garbage, but I could put quirks in it intentionally, like you know, have you know those weird uh, octagonal prism type filters that you can screw into the front of the lens that turn it into right. a almost kaleidoscope effect. What if that was like some internal element within a lens? Uh, make them all that way. What is it going to look like? What type of crazy abstract artwork are you going to create? I think I have, have you ever shot through just, just a regular magnifying glass, take the lens yeah. of your camera, put a magnifying glass in front of it. Just, just get a, get a cardboard tube and put a few lenses in there and see what happens. Call it a singlet if you're going to be a professional about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is the simplest type of optic that you can get. Um, I've taken apart some uh, cheap, like a Helios 44, uh, that they're not as cheap as they once were on eBay. <laughs> but they, I mean, they're pure mechanical lenses. You can take them apart. You can put them back together in a different order of optics or, you know, flip some uh, uh, lenses around. And, and I've had some fun creating really odd streaks of light within, within the frames. I think that would be kind of fun, though, to actually spend a bit of time gaining rudimentary knowledge of, um, of what lenses could behave in a certain way and then 3D printing the lens to hold the various elements and give that a whirl. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's going to be one of my projects in the next year if I don't have too many other things once I get my book done. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you for that pick, Chris. If anybody's curious about uh, bespoke tiny telescope optics, check out the video. It's less than 20 minutes long. It goes through everything that you need to know how these things are created uh, and the personality behind it. So thanks. I appreciate that. It's rare that we get a video as a pick. Uh, and I encourage everyone to go and check that out at the show notes at photogeekweekly.com and check out Chris everywhere he can be found. As he said, chrismarquart.com is where everything coalesces and the links will be in the show notes for this episode as well. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Chris, thank you so much for being in the co-pilot seat today. It's a blast as always. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. And everybody listening, you know what to do. It is now time to get out and shoot.